Hello, everyone, and welcome back to LambdaCast. Uh, first off, I'd like to introduce a new member who is joining us for the very first time. Uh, Gary, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, I've been a software developer for about 10 years and worked on all kinds of interesting systems, but pretty much just doing imperative programming. Um, and I want to know more about functional programming, so... Here I am. Awesome. So Gary joins uh, the cast. That would be me, David Kuntz. Uh, and then I'm joined also by Aaron Johnson. Hey, everybody. Same old Aaron. And Logan Barnett. Hello. All right. Uh, it, as always, you can contact us at contact at lambdacast.com. Our website is lambdacast.com. If you need to watch the episode or listen to the episode directly on SoundCloud, it'll take you there. There's also an RSS link. You can find us on iTunes and Google uh, Play Store, so pretty much all the normal places you would think to look. And speaking of feedback, we actually do have a piece of feedback this week. Uh, Steven Seirich contacted me uh, through a functional programming Slack channel and uh, wanted to sort of set the record straight on range versus codomain. So I had stated that codomain was kind of the new way of stating range, as in the you know, the things that are output from the function versus the domain, which are the things that are input into the function. And uh, he very correctly uh, made the distinction that the codomain is the basically the type of the output. So if we say I have a function from int to int, then every possible int is in the domain and the codomain. Or if it's say like int to uh, string, for example, then every possible int is in the domain and every possible string is in the codomain. Range, however, is only the values that can possibly be output by the function. So for example, if you have a function from int to int, but the function is n times 2, then clearly no odd numbers will be in the output. So the codomain is all ints, but the range is only even ints. Probably not a super important distinction for our purposes, but because um, we usually think in types, and we don't restrict the type to say, we don't have a type that's like only even ints or something like that. But there is a difference between range and codomain. Makes sense. Uh, speaking of uh, places to meet people and get feedback from listeners, there is a Slack community called, uh, actually, I don't know if they consider themselves to have a name, but the place where you go to sign up for it is fpchat.com. And that is a uh, like automated form that will get you into that Slack channel. And that is a very active community across a huge number of languages, lots of people, uh, lots of conversation every day. A very active JavaScript community there. So it's all about functional programming. That's the FP of the FP chat. And uh, if you want to do functional JavaScript or you're in, you want to take the dive into Clojure or Erlang or Elm or, or whatever, that is a fantastic community uh, for that. So I would recommend everyone to go take a look at fpchat.com. And with that said, I think we're ready for this week's topic. So what is this week's topic? I think we're going to go into why would anyone want to use functional programming in the first place? Why functional programming? Why functional? So we've talked about what functional programming is, uh, and probably a little bit out of order. We maybe should have first answered the question, why would you even be interested in this? Although I think it's useful that now that we've talked about a lot of those terms, we can kind of uh, be a little more specific about how those fit into the general you know, craft of developing software. So, uh, Logan, you have a great question that I think leads us to uh, at least one potential answer for this. Why don't you uh, why don't you take us through that? All right. 
the, the basic question is, what is the ideal function? And for, for OO people, that's like, you know, think of your ideal method, sure. Just like a block of code that you can invoke and it does something. And when you say ideal, you're looking for like, what are the properties that this thing exhibits? Right. Right. I mean, clearly you can look at some functions and say, wow, this is a terrible mess. I am sad that I have to maintain this. And some of them are like, wow, this was this is really easy, or I can understand it, or this has I've never had to come back here to fix a bug or whatever. Okay. And you want to know what are the properties that we that come to mind when we talk about this like idealized uh function. Right. All right. What do we, what do we got? Well, my first so as you guys are talking about that, and I'm uh, just uh, spinning off the top of my head here, but the very first thing that comes to mind is, are you guys talking a little bit about clarity, like about um, how, the fu how the function, for example, is laid out? Well, that's kind of a value that you can ascribe to it, right? Yeah, there's, I, I think ideal is, is a difficult question to answer because everyone's going to give you a different answer on, on what they like and what makes sense to them intuitively. Okay, well, and let me ask you this. I would imagine... Okay. Uh, uh, let me jump in here. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine that there are functions that you have written in your career where you have thought, geez, I really wish I could make all of my other functions just like this one. But for practicality reasons or just techniques, I just don't even know how I would go about doing that. So I'm going to continue to write things in the way that just makes sense at the moment, as opposed to this pure idealistic way that I see this function as right now. Um. I, well, I don't mean to throw you off here, but I would say not not exactly because function there's such a wide range of functions, right? I mean, functions can do so many different things, and um, functions sometimes they're they're very very simple. If you're writing a function to, I mean, we talked about not using math examples, but writing a function that's just giving you a sum, it's very easy to make that really clean. Um, okay. As opposed to go ahead. I, I hear what you're saying here. Why is? Well, let me ask yeah. this question: If you could say. I want a set of properties, and I want all functions to exhibit this set of properties because that would just be awesome. What would your ideal set of properties be? And then, bam, just twinkle our nose, wave our wand, all functions that you have to work with, <laughs> you know, function slash methods, are going to exhibit these properties. What, what properties would you pick? Like, what things do you care about that are like, big picture, this is the stuff that's really important to me in terms of my functions? Well, for me, I mean, one of the big things... And I know this this gets touted in in object oriented programming circles as well as functional, I'm sure, but like that it a function does one thing well. Or just does one thing. Okay, so that's the whole like single responsibility principle kind of thing. Right. right? Does one thing. Yeah. To to kind of expound upon that, like the we've we've all seen come across functions that are like three hundred lines long. They're clearly not doing one thing. I'm try like three thousand lines. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm trying to be generous here, but I'm sure those exist in many sad code bases. So, so Logan, you're saying by necessity, a function that only does one thing can only be so big, and it's probably not three hundred lines. Right. And it's not to say that there's an ideal line number, but I mean, clearly, if you're if you're at three hundred plus lines, you're not simple anymore. You're not you're not um, doing just one thing. Okay, so if we if we said in general uh, that this that only doing one thing necessarily puts a um, like a gravitational pull towards a smaller function, if you say like this really only can do one thing, like for reals, not like you think it's really only doing one thing, you know, actually only doing one thing, 
it kind of has to be small. Right. Is that kind of generally agreeable, Aaron, do you think? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think that having a focus on one thing does increase the clarity normally as a clarity is kind of an unusual word, but yes. Yeah. <clears throat> if I could interrupt, and, and I don't know how this relates to functional programming, is are there times in, I'll just say in functional programming where a function should do more than one thing or yeah, shouldn't just be doing one thing? I, I think in my experience of doing, and I haven't actually written, done like real work in a pure functional language, but um, in writing functional style, I have found sometimes you're just going to have to like combine things at some point or whatever. And that's okay because like, like Dave said, there's like a gravitational pull towards having things smaller. So even your biggest function is not doing a ton of things. Right, you don't you don't wind up with God functions essentially. Right, like I mean, what's the difference between like, uh, you know, call you know, are you doing two things if you call you you get a value back from A and B and C and then combine them into D and then hand that back? Like, did you do one thing? Did you do three things because you invoked those functions? Like, basically, it's like one conceptual thing. You did that and then you returned it back. And and I think one thing that really uh, pushes that in a pure functional language, like a you know again a Haskell Elm pure scripty kind of thing, is that every function is a single expression. That was kind of in that second episode where we talked about that's as a, like a language feature, and because every function is a single expression, you kind of can't do two things because you could you have to return a value and you can only return one value. So like, are you gonna do two separate things and return a tuple of two values? It, it's kind of weird, right? It's like you can't look yourself in the mirror and be like. Yep, that was that was a single responsibility function because you're kind of like it, it. It's very obvious that you're lying to yourself. Like I put the the foo and the bar in here, even though it's called do do foo. Like it doesn't make sense, right? It's it's very obvious that you're doing trying to do more than one thing. I, I think that's um, it's a little more obvious, but something to touch on. Going back to the ideal form on a function is, and we're talking, and we're, it's related to single responsibility, but the ideal function doesn't go out there and touch a whole bunch of stuff you don't expect or change a bunch of things that because that's maybe one of the worst things to come across is what does this do oh it does everything that's an even though it has the name you know do foo it is doing bar and all these other things and taking out the call of that function breaks everything for example that's an interesting thing so that's like side effects right and that's what we call that that's when that's when you're you're altering something else that's not part of your function that you have Right, and it's not, but it's not just it's not a side effect in the sense of, um, well, we talked about side effects in the past. We talked about how a side effect is altering the file system or, or changing a label or something. And I think a function can have multiple side effects and still serve one purpose. But well, we're also talking about side effects as like I, you invoke a function in one part of your application and it changes some completely remote state in another part of the application. Right, and that's a bad side effect. Right, and Aaron's saying that you can have side effects and still follow single responsibility. It's just that there's a additional yes. characteristic that Aaron's identifying that if a function is single responsibility and, let's say, isolated, would that be a reasonable way of stating what you're talking about? Yeah, that's, that's a nice term for it. Sure. If a f function is isolated, whether it's single responsibility or not, the fact that it's isolated is nice. So why do you value isolation? Okay, we should actually ask this. Why do we value single responsibility? I think we've answered it, but is there any, like, can someone summarize that for us? Um, I mean, it makes it easy to reason about. It makes it easy to know what the function is going to do. It doesn't require a lot of context. 
outside of the function. And it doesn't require a lot of context because it's kind of like baked into the name. It's like do do thing, right. and then you're like, okay, it's going to do the thing. And then every line in here is related to doing that thing. Is that kind of right. what you're like the value you see in single responsibility? Yeah. What by what um is the value of isolation of an iso quote unquote isolated function? Um it's really very similar. Um and uh, I keep going back to this to this clarity word, but um you know when a function is isolated, that it's not going out there and changing something that, for lack of a better word, it shouldn't be. Something is unrelated to, to what you expect. If it says it's going to do thing and it does thing and another thing, um, it makes it really hard to find where another thing happens. For example, if you're looking at the code, it, you don't want to have to go and look at every single function to make sure that it's not doing more than it says it's going to do. Okay. That's just one of the benefits. There, there's a lot of benefits to, to isolated functions, but that's, that's certainly one is maintenance. If you're coming in from the outside and you didn't write the code yourself or you wrote it yourself a long time ago, you don't want to have to look through every function to find out where you actually update this label, for example, or, or whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, to me, that, that sort of um, speaks to another aspect of, you know, that's not... Uh, it's not. It's writing code, but it's not the code that we ship with our application. It's testing. But I, I feel there's a very direct relationship between isolation oh, sure. and testability. Test, that's, a, that's 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 a good point. Yes. Right. And, and it's thing, almost like good. The thing that makes testing really hard is when you have to like mimic a bunch of behavior of like things that would be altered by your tests or or whatever. Right? Altered by your function. Right. Like I think I, it's fine to say that ideal form for a function includes testable. We're on board with that, right? Like OO people, you know, C programmers, whatever, like probably everyone's on board with this. Even if you're not a big fan of unit testing, I don't think anybody looks at code that's easy to unit test and thinks that that's a bad thing. With perhaps the exception of people who um, uh, maybe feel that there was compromises made in the code to make it testable, mm. right? Like it was designed for testability uh, before, like like at a at a priority higher than sort of the application itself. Like okay. I've heard that complaint against testing. Okay. And, and you know, and maybe it's fair. Yeah. I was just gonna make this point that we're talking about a function that, I, and I guess um, <laughs> we talked about the ideal form of a function. Uh, we didn't, or the ideal properties of a function. We didn't mention correct. <laughs> like it actually works. So that um, it's assumed. That's, that's, that's fair, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is of course, number one, it works and then after that, let's put, you know, single responsibility and isolated and testable and, and all that fun stuff. But um, so we're not talking about testable at the expense of working or efficiency or things like that. We're saying testable in addition to all these other properties. Sure. So then I, I would ask if you if you want these things, this single responsibility, isolated, testable. Is there anything else that comes to mind just in general, like stuff you see in C Sharp or JavaScript or, or whatever? Uh, that that's like, man, I see these functions and these are great functions and they have this other property we haven't talked about. This is, uh, once again, this is kind of the opposite. When you look at a function and it's really inefficient, like it's poorly coded and it's, um, uh, you know, uh, set up in a way where it could be done, for example, I mean, this is a really simple way of saying it, but it could be done in one line and they're doing it over the course of 10 for no good reason. Or maybe they didn't understand um, what they were doing before they started writing the function. And so it kind of loops around and just has a has a very inefficient way of doing something that can be done much more efficiently. So so would you say that uh, is that property like concise? Uh 
Not necessarily, no. Okay. Because um, it could concise is great, but sometimes so you need to you need to be wordy. Are you talking about things like I unrolled my loop because I just didn't want to write a for loop, so I'm just going to hard code indexing into this list that I know is going to be ten elements long. Yeah, absolutely. That's an example of it. Okay. And 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 again, you could do that. I don't, I don't think that. Um, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think the functional programming is necessarily going to solve that problem because sometimes people just write bad code. Um, but that's definitely a property of an ideal function is that it's not um, written inefficiently without cause. So it is as, uh, well, that's what I was trying to get with, with concise is it is as short as it needs to be and no shorter and no longer, um, right? This is like ideal middle ground of like, it does what it does in you know, using sort of readable, understandable uh, idioms, and it doesn't do anything extra, and it's not missing anything. Yeah, we can we can go with that. For for me, that usually means it's not the first time I wrote it; like it's been refactored. I've I've thought about it more than once. I didn't just start like writing it, or or I wrote it once, and that's good enough. But no, I wrote it. I thought about it, or I thought about it. I wrote it. I rewrote it. That kind of thing. That's exactly uh, true for me too. So I, I kind of was acting like other, only other people are doing it, but for sure, sometimes if I'm writing something that is hard for me to wrap my head around, my first time through writing it, I don't really write it very smartly. It's not that it's buggy. It's not that it doesn't work. It just works in a dumb way, <laughs> like, like Logan talked about. Like, oh, you know what? I really should just be iterate, iterating through this on the for loop rather than going through 10 times. Okay. So... I agree. Like in the big picture, the first time through, you're just trying to get your thoughts down and, and kind of get the big picture, like get it loaded into your head. And the second mm -hmm. time you have so much more context that you can probably make things better. But there are um, maybe smaller picture versions of that. Like, for example, when you were talking about the it's 10 lines when it could be one, my first mm -hmm. thought was someone's never heard of Link, right? They're sure. like doing these like multiple for loops that are mutating an array like in like three different for loops instead of blah dot filter or blah dot uh, where dot select dot whatever. Yeah, using all the technology that's available in the language, and and hopefully, um, I, I know or the right the right tool for the job is actually that's that's really what I think we're talking about is is or I'm talking about is um, using the right tools that the that your programming language gives you for the job at hand. If you don't know about for loops, for example, then your code's going to look a lot worse, and you don't know about link either. Your code's going to look a lot worse than if you do. Sure. And I would argue that that's um, even not just the best tools that your language gives you, but mm -hmm. you're using the right abstractions, right? Like, like uh, select is a vastly, in my opinion, a vastly superior abstraction to a for loop for what it does. It clearly doesn't do everything a for loop does, but for the purposes of going through every element in a list or an array or whatever, and mm -hmm. modifying each element to be something else, select is a way better abstraction than a for loop. Yeah, in the same way that a couple of years ago, for each was so much better than using a for in its, you know, for with mm -hmm. an int counter. Mm -hmm. For uh, just for clarification, since I'm the new guy, uh, select is is uh, equivalent to map, right? Yes, and uh, yeah, we talk about C sharp because uh, we have, you know, most of uh, Aaron, uh, Logan, I have C sharp background as well as JavaScript background, so we try to relate those. I yeah. actually, yeah, I actually do oh, as awesome. well, but okay. it's kind of like. I, I stopped right around the time Link was... Gotcha. So, yeah. yeah. For anyone joining us, uh, select is map, where is filter, and aggregate is fold or reduce, depending on which one of those you run into. 
Okay, so we've got um, some properties. We were isolated and testable. We do only one thing, and we um, are good about picking the right abstractions and and kind of tool for the job, um, which you could call concise or you know sort of kind of thing. Uh, that feels pretty good to me. I mean, I don't I don't really have anything to add to that. Um, so now the question, what I would put forward to my completely staged rhetorical question that, that Logan asked on our behalf is uh, I would say, I think functional programming answers this and answers it very well because of one thing and only one thing, the pure function. So Logan, do you want to take us through why the pure function is the answer to everyone's problems in the silver bullet that everyone's been looking for for all of time? Um, uh, I'll just break down these stone tablets and let you guys know. Uh, well, the, the pure function does all of the things that we just talked about, right? It's um, it's isolated by definition. The pure function can't go and touch other things. It can't even mutate data that's passed to it. It has to give back either the original data as is, or you know, some newer version of it that's its own independent thing, like like a copy, like a derivative value that it created. And things that fall off that is like they become easy to test because you know the only thing that you might need to like you don't even really mock things you might stub something. Am I getting that term right? I always get those right. Yeah, you, you, there's nothing. There's nothing that you're gonna need to have called a function on, and thus there's nothing you need to mock. Yeah, like you might have to pass like if you if you're writing your own version of map or some equivalent to it. You need to know that the function on the inside got called, I would think. The, the thing that you passed in got called, yeah. So you right. have a step there. And you yeah. might have to have a way to test that, and you'd have to have a way to like, you know, create that function and then pass it in. Mm -hmm. And if it's more complicated, like I'm using a database over here, then it gets a little bit more complex. But still, it's you're not going and checking the database object to make sure that some state got set or that you know it was called in some sequence or something like that. Right. That's just not that's just not how that works. Uh, let's see. I don't, I mean, we talked about how, I mean, those things do turn out to be usually concise and small and single responsibility. It's kind of hard to make them complex. Because they're only doing one thing? Right. Well, and they can only do one thing. Like you were saying, like, it's just an expression. Like, you can't go and load it up with eight different expressions because you only get one. You only get one, and they can't touch anything outside. You can have one expression that's composed by several smaller expressions. Mm -hmm. But... It's still like you're not bound to, say, for instance, sequence when you do that. So it's not this thing happens, and then this thing happens, and then this thing happens. Right. You, you, you're computing a value at the end of the I, day. I'm building a list, and it's reaching from all these different sources right? that, that, that were given to me. But you know, at the end of the day, it's still just building a list. Mm -hmm. And handing back. Yep. So pure functions, well, first, let me ask you this. Does, does that jive with your guys', like, specifically Aaron and Gary, does it feel like that is a, a fair representation of a pure function? Or is it like, eh, you guys are a little with the rose-colored glasses on the pure functions here. Like, they don't, they don't actually uh, satisfy these properties. No, I, I think they do satisfy the properties. But like you had said in the previous episode, uh, all they do is warm the box. If, if you're still not touching outside code. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like every function clearly cannot be just a pure function and thus, you know, the world is saved. Right. And and that's still something that I'm uh, struggling with in terms of like, well, where do I where do I have pure functions versus impure functions? Like it's really the conceptual, how do I start if I'm starting a new project or actually no, if I have an existing project, 
Where do I start? Absolutely. And that is a super uh, fantastic question. And I think deserving of uh, perhaps its own episode <laughs> in entirety. The super short answer I would give you is uh, it's okay to have non-pure functions. You know, if you need to have a non-pure function, just do it. Like you need to talk to the database, just do it. You need to have side effects, just do it. But then say, can I do just the side effect bit here and then pass it into a chain of pure functions? Like, can I make the surface area of the impure function as small as possible? Right, basically all your impure stuff is happening in as few places as possible. Yeah, and, and all that happens in that function is the impure part, and then it hands it off to pure functions. That sounds awesome. Yeah, and it's it sounds really simple, and it's slightly harder to put into practice. Um, although I, exactly. I don't actually think it's that hard to put into practice. In the same way that pure functions are a really simple idea, right? That's like, I don't think any programmer who's been programming for more than couple weeks has a really hard time understanding like yeah it just you know it's a pure function like once you explain what that is that's not that hard uh, but the it's so amazing to me the idea of like why don't we just use these everywhere is just not part of programming culture like it's just that's not an idea that's floated around and is taught and is you know, talked about regularly that's what's been blowing my mind in the last week since i've listened to the podcast and started looking into this is yeah how, how simple the concept is why didn't i learn this when i was 12. I mean, well, I was doing QBasic, but why didn't I learn this when I started programming? Why is this, I'm 33 and I'm just now learning this? And it's so simple. There's no reason I shouldn't know this. Sure. And you've written pure functions, right? Like you, you've even used them. And it, right. Of course. It's like it was right there all along. It, it felt very matrix to me, matrixy to me. Like what? This, like everything's a lie kind of thing. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but. Um, no, that's pre pretty accurate, actually, to how I'm feeling this week. <laughs> I'm going to make the argument that because functional programming is based around the idea of, or one of its core principal ideas, is maximizing the use of pure functions and pushing the side effects to the side to where they're absolutely necessary, that we get a better default design. So like we have the good property set of, of things by default. The good property set by default. So, like, we, we have these properties. It's single responsibility. It's isolated. It's testable. It's uh, uses the right abstractions. That one's harder to say that pure functions give you that. I, I'll totally admit that just because you're a pure function doesn't really mean you're going to have, um, you know, the good abstractions or the correct abstractions. But we can at least say single responsibility and isolated testable and, and all that fun stuff. Um, pure functions give you that by default. Whereas in a in, in traditional imperative language, uh, where you mix them and you don't really think of functions as pure and impure, like that distinction is not made often, you, you kind of have to think, is this single responsibility? Is this, you know, going to be testable? Is this, you know, all, all these things. If you start with, is this a pure function? You've already answered all those questions. Like the answer is yes. And I've been thinking since you asked that question about like, are you just looking through it with the rose colored glasses? And my first thought was like, there's no way it's fixing all those. And so I'm trying to think of an example for a, of, a, of a pure function that's not easily testable or that's not just doing one thing. Um, and I haven't thought of any. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I am perhaps, perhaps my glasses are becoming a slightly different shade of uh, or a different hue here in the pink or the, area. Or the scales have fallen from your eyes and you can. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, or maybe it's that. Maybe uh, all, all this time I didn't know. Um, but because of the fact that, like you said, you're just taking a pure function means you're you're taking whatever you need to work on in. You can actually mutate it, and you're sending else some you're sending something else back after working on that data. Maybe that does mean that there's just you know that that necessarily you're gonna 
have things that are isolated and testable, you certainly don't get single responsibility because you can have a function that has a really long name and just pass in 30 parameters. It's just unlikely someone's going to do that because it's not even a convenient way to code. I, I agree with that. You so. can abuse this, right? But let's say pure functions the way you are likely to implement them in practice forces yeah, you it into. encourages you yeah. to it, it encourages a, a more clear and a more single responsibility oriented design and in those uh you know the stricter like pure functional languages since you can only have one expression that you have to return i actually don't know what useful thing really you would do with like 30 parameters like i actually don't know that it is possible to write a function i mean it's possible in the like haha i'll show you uh sense but like in a practical sense i don't know if there's a useful unit of work you would do that takes like, 30 would you find this in the wild? yeah or you would even right. want to do this and put it in and say like i'm a professional developer and i wrote this and this is a good idea that, that's kind of what i mean is is uh yeah i mean you could have some strange list or some you know there's there's support for tuples or some object that has a whole bunch of different properties that you pass in or that you get back rather and so you could technically you know change a whole bunch of things and then send back the new object and so but it it the design doesn't encourage that the design it it wouldn't make sense because I think sometimes people get lazy and they want to do the easiest thing, and that's not the easiest thing. Right, you would just write five different functions and then just do do do. Yeah, it's yep. actually it's actually simpler to, to to do it five different functions. Right, and so that's why I'm kind of talking about this like it, I think functional programming via pure functions gives you better design by default. Like the default mode for your functions is do the right thing, uh, and and you can you know if you've got a compiler to help you out with that, great. If you don't. Uh, just pure by saying, "Hey, this is going to be a pure function," kind of, you know, puts puts you into that mode. Yeah. N not only do you get that better design by default, but it's less taxing on the developer to think about. Um, so you're able to spend less time thinking about um, how everything maybe connects, um, and more time thinking about. Well, I don't know. Maybe that was a bad. Example, no, I. I it, to me, that's that's something I really like. Is that it, it feels like. It it um, I think in the last episode you said you know you can have like five things in your mind at once, um, and when I'm at work it's completely full of the entire code base, um, but with pure functions it's not like that kind of gives me a bit of freedom. I'd I'd say a good I completely agree with you. A good example of that is I did some functional programming work sort of today, still in C sharp, but um, using the same concepts. And I coded for, I don't know, like a good hour and 15 minutes, just doing all this. I had to refactor some stuff and do some new things. I was coding, didn't, didn't uh, ever try and you know, take a look at, at running this application, and coded for hour and 15, hour and a half. And I ran it, and I was 90% of the way working, which just never happens for me. There were just a couple little tweaks I had to make, and I had everything up and running because I'm just doing all these, I'm making all these little pieces work. And so the only reason that it didn't work is because I, you know, that's a long time of, of coding without actually having anything having any feedback on what you're doing, but that has happened to me in the past with functional programming where because of the fact that you just have a bunch of little simple pieces, sometimes when you're done, it, it, it just works, which is not always the case, at least for me. And I think that's true for most people. Yeah, like it runs and I'm just like, no. And I like break it intentionally and I put it back and I'm like, well, I guess it was working. It wasn't a false positive. <laughs> Yeah, we, we used to have a joke when Dave and I were working together on one of our last projects. It's like, if we wrote something and it worked the first time, they'd be like, oh, that bug is just going to be really hard to find now. Yeah, where's the bug we didn't <laughs> see? Because clearly yeah. there's a bug here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Never, never trust a code that, that works perfectly the first time. And the joke is, of course, it compiles ship it, right? That's like the traditional joke. And in Haskell, it's actually like this 
<laughs> no, actually, we're kind of serious, guys. Like, if it compiles, ship it. Like, we actually kind of can do that. Not 100%. Like, obviously, you don't just forego testing and whatnot. But uh, it is a lot more true. And, if, you know, if you're in C-sharp and you don't have, um, you know, some of these guarantees. Yeah, I'm obviously missing some of the tools. Probably want to yeah. do more testing. But like you're saying, Aaron, a comp writing code for an hour and a half and then it kind of just works is kind of amazing. Yeah, that's not something that happens often for me. So congratulations. <laughs> well, I can't take, you know, I'd like to thank my friend functional programming. Yeah, the pure function, Mr. Pure comma function. <laughs> I would say that um, functional programming's kind of like taxonomy is perhaps almost even the equivalent of like design patterns for Oh, oh. Okay. What, what do you mean by that? Well, whenever you like want to think about an abstract tool that you use to solve problems, in the OO sense, right? You you plot mm -hmm. a design pattern. Well, often, right? Yeah. And the beauty of and and the, the beauty is that you plot a design pattern so that you can talk about that without having to describe all of its properties every single time. So, like, I, I don't have to describe what the visitor pattern is if we're going to talk about something that needs messaging or or whatever. And uh, you just know what I mean when I say visitor pattern, or at least you have a good mm -hmm. idea. And that's that's really handy in OO. Uh, those don't quite exist in functional programming, but maybe the next best thing is like this, this colossal taxonomy that seems to exist for all these different kinds of functions. Are you talking about like, when you say kinds of functions, what do you mean? Uh, I don't know what all of them mean yet. That's that is a big gap in my functional programming knowledge. Like the monoid and functor, that kind of thing. Yeah, like mm -hmm. applicative and and that kind of thing. And you know, it, it, coming from an imperative background, seeing all of those things can be quite daunting, especially since they're all very like small, simple definitions, and they compose into larger ones. Whereas usually, like design patterns are just like standing on their own, if that makes sense. Um, but it's like, you know, in order for you to understand what uh, a monoid is, you kind of also have to understand what a functor is. And that also means applicative, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's kind of the opposite direction. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Some build on each other, for sure. Yeah. And it's like, if somebody jumps ahead and starts talking about monads, you know, it's easy to get confused because you don't understand all of the things that came before it. But the beauty is, is once you get there, Every every single rung you go up the ladder is an exponential increase in the kinds of things that you can start talking about, and they're and they're formal, and they, as I understand, exist between languages. Right, because they're just they're sort of just concepts that have implementations. Every imperative language just kind of shoots from the hip on their vocabulary, and it's like, oh, these are getters and setters, these are bean properties, these are attributes, right? And, and those are all coming from like the same. Or, or that's the same thing for like three different languages. I gotcha. And you're saying in functional programming, one of these benefits that you see is that it sort of like, there's like one set of these sort of like ideas that are codified and, you know, different languages maybe do it in different, slightly different ways. But once we've talked about them, we understand them. We don't ever have to like reinvent that wheel in terms of like conceptually rediscovering right. the same thing that people have been doing and maybe calling something else for years in a different language. Right. And this is typically things that are taught to people in computer science backgrounds. Um, those of us who learn computer engineering, I don't think typically learn about these things. Gotcha. I actually don't think most computer science courses go anywhere near category theory or functional programming. Uh, yeah. And I guess it's worth mentioning that things like category theory and lambda calculus are like what these draw from. Right. And so there's a, there's a basis for them. 
Is it fair to say, um, and I'm kind of just listening here for the first time on some of this, but is it fair to say, Logan or Dave, that there really is a taxonomy for imperative and there's a taxonomy for functional? Like there, there is plenty of um, vocabulary you need to learn to, to work in imperative as well. But it's hard to switch into functional because you're starting with a whole new set. It's not like when your language gets an update and there's maybe one or two new keywords that you need to learn or, or none sometimes. Um, and when you're switching, you know, from even in between imperative languages, okay, well, oh, okay, my getting set is called beans here or, or uh, attributes here, whatever. But when we're talking about the switch into functional programming, it's just a whole new set of vocabulary that there isn't an equivalent for. And so it makes it a more difficult switch because it's a whole new set of words. Is that fair to say? When you're jumping between paradigms, I would say yes. I mean, I think if you're going between, if you're going from like Elm to PureScript or something, probably not so much. Yeah, within within uh, with, within that whole FP world, you're, you're kind of saying that, that the, the vocabulary is a lot, little more shared than in the imperative world. Yeah, the patterns exist, in, can exist in yeah. both places, in both languages, the old mm -hmm. language and the new language. There might be, again, different, slightly different formulations. I like what you're saying about terminology and shared conventions. I want to get back to um, the pure function thing real quick in that by just giving, I think Aaron, you had mentioned this, that by just giving it a name and, and, and uh, Gary, you were mentioning this just a minute ago, that by giving something a name and kind of framing it in a certain way, it frees you from thinking about it or it, or it uh, like you don't have to decide if it's a good idea in the moment. You just kind of go, what am I doing? Oh yeah. Pure function which is uh, you don't even have to remember what the properties of a pure function are. You just have to remember what it is and you get those properties for free by abiding by the kind of the rules of what a pure function is. Does that seem to like, is that kind of what you were talking about? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. My experience is that somehow getting that vocabulary and understanding and, and realize, cause I'm, I'm not writing a function now, right? I still have a job. I have to work all the time. I'm doing maintenance. Um, on some old projects, and it's not really a reasonable thing to start up from scratch and say, okay, well, we're switching over to functional. But in doing some of this maintenance and in writing my code, it is much easier to take, um, even in the imperative style here, take, take that and say, you know, I'm, I really like the benefits that pure functions give. And having that vocabulary lets me identify like, oh, okay, you know what? This function is terrible and this one is good and this is why. Because this one's pure and this one's not. And this one's, you know, simple and this one's not. And it's just not something that I'd, I'd really even thought about before. And, and when you put a name on something like that, then you start noticing it. There's a, there's a name for that where you hear about something and then you see it all over the place. I don't remember what the name of that is. Uh, spotlight uh, phenomenon? Or spotlight, uh, I'm not actually not sure it's called. The spotlight something. It's got a German <laughs> name, um, I'm sure. Well, uh, it, has a it has a name. So we will establish that. And uh, yeah. You start seeing it everywhere, and I, that's been my experience. And on top of that, I start wanting to use it more as well because it just makes sense. It just makes things more clear, and I, I don't really see a reason not to do that, not to focus on, okay, whenever possible, just make your, just make your functions pure and have all your quote-unquote impure stuff happening in one spot. You, you know what I just realized like right now? What I love about that idea is that um, I can forget about it. I can write a pure function and not think about it again until I need to go back to it. It's not something I ever have to keep in my mind. I have a really bad memory, which makes learning a code base difficult at times. Um, but with a pure function, I don't have to do that because if I need to know about it, I'll go back to it and it will take me, you know, 
one second, you know, just a few seconds to read it and be like, oh, yeah, that's what's going on. And there's no side effects. And I just don't have to keep that in my mind, which for me is just Yeah, huge. I have a huge problem with, like, remembering, uh, like, uh, like my 7 plus or minus 2 is not at the favorable end of that uh, that little number there. And You're the, not rocking the 9? I, I don't know that I'm rocking the 9, to be honest. Uh, people say I'm I'm pretty sharp, but I do not feel like I'm rocking the nine. So I feel like, yeah, the more I'm closer to those, like, yeah, I can just set this down. And like, I had a thing, it was over there, don't really remember the details, and that doesn't matter, <laughs> right? <laughs> the fact that I remember the deal, details, the, the finer points, is okay. It, maybe that's the reason I was into functional programming in the first place. Yeah, I, I think that's why I'm really starting to warm to the idea so quickly. <laughs> Yeah, people talk about well, one thing I, as an anecdote. When people people talk all the time, I'm not smart enough to do functional programming. I turn around, I'm like, I'm not smart enough not to do functional programming. Like, I don't know how you people keep your OO state spaghetti thing straight at all. I cannot follow that. I feel very bad. Uh, you know, trying to work in a big, you know, complex code base like that. I, I almost feel like I have to be functional out of necessity. I came across an interesting uh, quote this week. I don't remember where it was. And again, I can't attribute it to the person, but someone had written it. It took me 10 or 15 years of development to realize that the worst thing I can do is try to be clever. That coding doesn't need to be this really, really intelligent, clever, where, oh, yeah, this it's, it's not about making everything as efficient as possible and unclear. You, really, what you're trying to do is, is make it as clear as possible most of the time. That's what, that's what we want in most of the applications we're writing. Yeah, it's kind of like boring is good. Boring is straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I have found in the functional style is that things that tend to be in, in imperative what you would consider clever, like, oh, look, I reached and ended a bunch of like metaprogramming stuff. It it does not feel clever when I go to do something that like cleans up a bunch of code just by moving up some abstract level. Does that make sense? Yeah, you mean, it's not like you're being clever and, and shortening it for the, you know, you're not getting getting concise to use our earlier term just for the sake of being concise you're just simplifying the code and, and right like, like i have these two functions and they they do the exact same thing except that the data that they operate upon has different properties in the names mm -hmm. or something and it's like finding a way to make that to where that's actually just one function and it's like configurable and how it works or something that that doesn't wind up being clever and, and this is again, this is this is more universal concepts that if you're someone that's listening to this podcast and you're interested in trying out um, functional programming and not quite sure where to start, we've talked before about how it can be difficult to start with a pure, and I haven't done this, but I've heard it can be very difficult to jump right into a pure functional language, but taking on some of the concepts into your current work, especially these ones that, that in, uh, well, in everyone that's casting here's opinion, just makes sense. Is a, is a nice, great way to get started. Definitely. Uh, the other good sort of like uh, bit of terminology, we talked about pure function. Like once you've named it, now you can kind of like point at it and be like, oh, that's a pure function. I have a name and a, and a concept to hang that on. The, the other one I'd just like to point out is effects, that, that we now, every function is either pure or effectful. And, and you look at it and go, hmm, if this is effectful, it should probably only be effectful. And then, you know, do pass it into some pure, either, you know, another effectful function if you need to, but it's not going to like mix sort of stuff that could be pure and effectful stuff. Generally, it's going to kind of like do the effectful stuff or do the pure stuff. And then you kind of keep those separate. So if I could uh, jump in and ask a question, I can have an impure function that has a side effects and I can take the results of that and pass it into a pure function. 
and necessary because the pure function has to get its data from somewhere. Right. Like something has to kick this whole thing off. Right. But a pure function cannot pass its data into an impure function. Right. If a pure function calls an impure function, then its own return value will include the result of the impure function, and thus the pure function cannot fulfill its contract right. of being referentially transparent, meaning it always returns the same value given the same inputs. Cool. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I understood. Yep. So it's kind of like uh, the way I like to talk to people about it is you've got a uh, side effect -y, and, and I keep saying side effects, an effectful thing uh, that kind of kicks off some chain of computation, you know, user click, network input, file changes, whatever, right? Uh, that like creates some piece of data that gets pumped into a pure function chain that kind of bounces around for a while and produces a new output uh, at the very end. And then that new, that final value that comes out is then pushed back into the world somehow, right? It's written to the database, put in a file, shown on the screen, your controller rumbles, whatever. And that's kind of, that's like, that's the loop with FP. It's like effectful thing, bunch of pure stuff, effectful thing. They kind of, they kind of bookend the, the most of your application, the, your application logic. And uh, a good talk for that, actually, is uh, Gary Bernhardt did a talk. Uh, I think this talk was in Ruby. If, maybe it was language agnostic. He's a big Ruby guy. But it's called uh, Functional Core Imperative Shell. And we'll get that into the show notes. Uh, but that's a great talk that kind of covers this idea. I think we've uh, mostly answered the, or I've mostly given my answer. I just wanted to throw uh, one last little bit in here, which is um, if you have pure functions, they have this property of always doing the same thing, and thus it's very, and, and they're very small and they're uh, single responsibility, and thus it's usually easy to hook a couple of them together to get a slightly bigger thing. Uh, this is, if you've ever done uh, the Lambda functions in, in the link statement, where you kind of plug in the thing to the select, or, or if you're doing a Lodash or, or Ramda, you know, you plug in your function into the, the map and then the filter and then the reduce or whatever it is that you're doing, uh, those all go together very nicely. So these pure functions have this nice property of often being very composable. And if you use something like Ramda in JavaScript, there's a straight up compose that says, take that function, that function, that function, glue them all together. Meaning, you know, if you have a function that's A to B and a function that's B to C, you glue those together, you get a function from A to C, right? Because the, the first one's output just becomes the input to the next one, that we just hook those together. And it's very common functional kind of paradigm to glue a bunch of functions together that way. Where in OO, like you would never make a new function out of existing functions that just like hooks them together. Right? That doesn't seem like normal at all. Uh, but because these are small single purpose, you get that. And that gets you in the mindset of, hmm, I can build bigger things out of smaller things. And often if I need a slightly more complex thing than these really simple building blocks, I can actually just glue them together. I find myself writing very few actual lambdas and almost always just glue in a couple existing functions together. I, I'm making a new function and it is specific to my purpose, but it's uh, existing functions kind of hooked together versus a straight up lambda from scratch. And I think the pure functions like give, give rise to that, if that makes sense. I think it does. I wanted to, and I'm, uh, you covered this, but just in case there's someone that's not familiar with uh, Link or a beginning programmer listening as well, I think that another example in the .NET world is where we're talking about composable functions or putting this in another, in another picture. Really often what you're going to do is you're going to two-string something and then do something with that two-string. Like you'll do dot .2-string and then dot .something else. Or you'll trim a string and do something else with it. And so that's what you're talking about when you say composable. It's just you're calling a function and then you're chaining onto the end of that and doing something else. Right. And what if you had a new function, which was 
two string with your you know with max length five or something sure and you're and uh so when we say and actually this is kind of a question i have i'm not quite sure i follow like how is uh how is functional programming making that easier because they're pure functions they always return a value mm -hmm. and as long as the output of a is the input of b you know you can just plug them together Every, everything's kind of like set up for composability right from the start um but so are you saying that if i I'm going to call both of those functions. I might make a new function that really is just calling both of those for me. That's exactly what Compose does. It's like creates a lambda that calls, takes in uh, the input, passes it to A, takes the output of A, passes it to B, takes the output of B, and returns it. And that's I, that sounds like something you could absolutely do again oh, yeah. in imperative. You can you could write a, sure. you could write a function that does that. Um, and I don't know what what's what's special about Compose that so. What is Compose doing that you're writing a whole new function is not doing? Uh, it's saving you from having to write a new function. Like when you look at the definition of the function, okay. it's just A and then B. You know when you see Compose, you've seen that dozens of times before. So you know how it behaves. Oh, so it's just a shortcut, basically. Okay, it's going to get a list of functions, and then it's going to get some data, and it's just going to move that data through all of those functions. In the same way that select... You know, when you see select, I don't have to explain what select does. You're just like, okay, we're going to map over this thing and, and do something to each element. Okay, but yeah, it really, is, really it, is, it is the exact same thing as a function that does it. It's just a, it's just a shorthand way to write that. And because it's so convenient, because it's so easy, mm -hmm. you do it. Yeah. And you do it a lot. And because okay. every single function in your entire language must return a value, there's nothing that returns void. Because you certainly can't compose things that return void, right? That doesn't work. Yeah, that's something I was thinking we might want to touch on. Is you're never going to have a, a, a void pure function, really. It Correct. Just doesn't make it, sense. it can't possibly be pure because uh, there is no output. So it's not a mapping from the set of you know the, the domain to the codomain. The codomain would have to be an empty set if you're mapping to void. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's useless. So um, because because every function uh, returns value, it means that every function that's ever written is a candidate for composition. Right, like you have just more of them lying around, whereas mm -hmm. in you know in C sharp maybe uh, it'd be interesting. I'd actually be really interested to know in a, in a decent sized code base what is the percentage of functions that return void versus the ones that don't, and I bet over fifty percent return void. Um, well, that'd be an interesting experiment. I think sometime as well we'll have to talk about, uh, and this is future episode, but about how null is going to work. Yes, absolutely. Um, or or not work. Or not. I, work. I made the claim that uh, pure functional languages don't have null. And of course, that uh, usually is when people go like, well, that's not possible. Like, you can't actually write software that way, uh, which is totally valid uh, concern. And you can, and, and, and we'll totally get into that. It's not, it's not that that doesn't exist. It's that you have to, like, it kind of forces you to account for it. I, I would argue that right. the thing that kind of takes the place of null in a pure functional language is typed and specific to that purpose. And thus, it's not null in the way null is just like, and eh, nothing. Yes. Yes, it's definitely not null as we know it, where it like, like bypasses your type system or whatever. Yeah, like all all roads end at null. Like you can't do anything with it once you're at it. Whereas you can, I mean, I don't know, maybe you can compose them to other things in the functional language. Certainly, there's there's a path where you're like, I got nothing back, and I know what to do with that, and and it's meaningful and and carries information with it. I didn't mean to send us on the rabbit hole there. That's that's a, that's a very big topic, I know, but I thought it was at least worth bringing up briefly that that's something to be considered. Definitely. So um, let's. We, I know there were some questions that were kind of um, brought up uh, ahead of time. Do you guys want to go through that and ask, kind of bring up stuff? Because it's 
totally fair to be like, and it's not all roses. Like, what, what about these things? Right? Like, in terms of if we're saying functional programming has these great benefits because of yeah. its, its sort of emphasis or enforcement, depending on the language you're working with, of pure functions. But what about these other things? Right, and the whole point of our episode yeah. is, is why functional programming. So yeah, go ahead, Gary. Uh, I'll start with my big one, which is, um, is there a common problem that functional programming can start solving for me right now that I don't even know I have? Yes, and you have already answered that question, but for the benefit of everyone else, uh, the answer is uh, you don't know what your code does. I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to blanket statement, general audience, you don't know what your code does. You think you know what your code does, and then it runs and it blows up in your face, and you go, oh, uh, I guess I didn't uh, you know, account for that, or check this, or blah, blah. In general, we don't know what our code does. Just like, I re I've spent a decade of my life basically having no clue what my code does, and, and hoping to God that it does not blow up in production, or you know, when I've shipped a game to someone, or whatever. We think we know what our code does, but we don't know. And to me, functional programming says, I am going to give you as close to a guarantee as you can get in this world that you actually know what your code does. Or at least I'm going to push you heavily in the direction of you being able to know what your code does. Does that kind of like, does that seem like a fair statement? Yeah, it's, it's not like a magic thing that somehow makes your charge moving over wire better than charge moving over wire emitted by imperative code. It's all just in your head at this point. I'd, I'd also like to add on to this that because the because the part of the question is is this right away thing, I think um, and this is something Gary and I have talked about since we both agreed on is in a way it solves the problem right away to start writing using pure functions just to know about them and say okay you know what this is something I I want to do in my code tomorrow and it it works it helps it makes your code better it makes your code clearer. And we talked about it at length in the episode, but I think that's very much a common problem is, um, well, not have, so having pure functions is not a exact problem or not having pure functions, but having pure functions will solve this common problem of how am I going to organize my code? And it helps solve that problem for you right from the start. And it, um, I mean, I, I have never, I've not written any, you know, actual, like written in a, uh, functional programming language, but already it has just changed the way I think about writing code, which just feels like a, a leg up already. Right, so the, the point should be made here that when we're talking about functional programming, we're not talking about functional programming languages, we're talking about the idea of functional programming, which means no matter what language you're in, you can start this tomorrow. I guess you could conceive of a language where a pure function is impossible somehow. <laughs> like you can only mutate registers or I don't know. Like <laughs> functional assembly is going to be tough. You may not be able to do higher order functions in your language and that makes right. it really hard. But right? in terms of the pure function bit, you can do that in your language right now. So you can start tomorrow. Did that kind of answer your question, Gary? Like, do you feel there's an aspect of that that doesn't really feel explored? No, that actually really answers it. I feel good about that. So my next question is a little bit um, blunt. So, you know, why functional programming? So why would you switch to functional programming in the sense of like, do you think that you, you develop faster? If you're trying to convince um, uh, your whole workforce to switch, for example, if you're coding in a functional language, are you, are you developing faster? What about your maintenance time? What about testing? Like, what does the speed look like as far as from start to finish? How long is it going to take to finish applications? once you're familiar with the 
with the basic concepts. Logan, do you want to speak to your experience of starting with sort of like traditional, uh, you know, JavaScript front end stuff and then transitioning into React and Redux and Ramda? So I'd say the biggest part about Redux is the reducers. And I don't know if that's actually like the, the real functional term for them. That's just what Redux calls it. And they call it that because it is basically the same kind of function that you would hand to a reducer. It takes an accumulated value and then you know some other value, and then you get a new accumulated value back. The signature is like sort of event and old state to new state, right? So like given this event and the old state, what is the new state? It change whatever is relevant for this particular event happening. Somebody click on this button. And then you change the state to be, you know, fold open uh, drop down menu. Yeah, it's like drop down menu goes from close to open. Like you flip that flag or something like that. Right. Or, or some action comes down the pipe. But these are all like the reducers are by design in the, in the Redux ecosystem. They have to be pure functions. So, so the, the contract is we're going to give you the old state. You can look, but you can't touch. Okay, so you've gone from like an Angular kind of setup, and this isn't really an Angular versus React, but it's sort of like a different paradigm kind of a thing, right? Evaluation here. Right. Of like Angular where you're kind of like, something happens and you poke something else and that causes something else to happen, kind of directly object mutation. It's not objects in the sort of the Java C-sharp sense, but it's kind of like that, to this like mm -hmm. a bunch of pure functions, these reducers, quote unquote reducers, where an event happens, here's, and it hands you the old state, and you don't know where that came from. <laughs> you're just a reducer, and then you're supposed to give back the new state. What did that do to your code base? It made it stupid easy to test. I mean, the reducer is just a function. So it, it's just a function. It takes a state. It takes an action. It gives you back a new state. And it's a pure function, to be clear. It's a pure function. So... So when I'm starting to write tests for this, because I'm, you know, I'm trying to be a good, you know, GED JavaScript guy, I I go and I make my test and I have my reducer. So I call my reducer because there's nothing fancy about it, and I hand it the old state and I give it just enough state so where it can handle the, you know, the 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 action that I'm going to pass in. I pass it the action, and then I get a new state out, and I just take a look at the new state. And that's just a plain JavaScript object. And that's just a plain JavaScript object. Just stupid easy to, to make a test date value. I didn't have to mock anything. I didn't have to use inject and pull in a bunch of you know dependencies and then mock stuff. And I didn't have to flush timeouts. And I didn't have to, um, uh, I've even like forgotten all the crazy things I had to do for Angular testing to like get it. To, I don't have to compile things. Because uh, it's just a function. You know, it's just. <laughs> It's just state management. That's all it is. It's just you have this entire section of your app where you just get to change the state, and you do so with this uniform, easy-to-use system that you know every all state changes come through the same pipe. So it's not like I clicked on a button and that kicked off an event handler, and that event handler just went and directly mutated some state somewhere. So now I have to like simulate this click object and you know, make the event, and you don't have to do these things. Yeah, and specifically, I would say that the super important part of this is it's just data coming in, and it's and it's sort of normal, inert data. It's not special like a click event, like like you're saying. It's just a JavaScript object with a type uh, field that's like a string and, you know, some, some values that are probably fairly inert, you know, data as well. That comes in, that goes out. 
and it's, it doesn't it right. doesn't matter what context it's invoked in. Like you could run this on the server, or you could run this in a browser, and it really wouldn't care how that event right. got started. And with Redux, like I don't know. I mean, like some of us have done like Rails programming, and we've worked with you know MVC.NET or some other equivalent like uh, model view controller type type setup. And it's like I've always gotten into discussions with people of like, okay, so does this belong in the model or does this belong in the controller? And why does the controller get to be the thing that touches everything? You just don't have that discussion in Redux. It just doesn't exist. It's just, no, you manage your state here, period. You are not allowed to go touch anything else. You're not allowed to call API functions. I don't know that it strictly enforces that. But if you do, like, nobody's going to help you. They specifically say, you know, that is not where API calls get to be made. Right, and they, there's a prescribed place for where those go. Right, and, and those API calls are effectful, for sure. The reducers are only allowed to manage states, so it's not like, well, I need to call this this function on this this method on this object, and then that goes and calls these other methods on other objects. It really is like you're saying, just inert data. You just go and say, you know, I have the, the state is just an object, and it doesn't have methods on it. It just has data, and you just go and change the data, and there's nothing else to it. Right. So that is a. Thank you for sharing about about that. I think that's a good example of like when you went from one world to another, what that can feel like. Like at the end of the day, like before you had like all this stuff, like crazy, like com what feels like very complex, like cathedral of architecture of stuff to like tie it all together. And then like I get to Redux and, and I've had the same experience. I get to Redux and I'm just like, oh, so basically I've got a bunch of pure functions and a little tiny bit of like JavaScript code to glue it all together, and that's kind of it. Like, <laughs> like that's it seems too simple. Like it shouldn't work. It's too simple. Like there's not enough here. There should we should need a right. big runtime thing and a factory right. factory and a blah blah blah. Like this can't actually write real software. It's like no, it's just a bunch of functions and a little tiny bit of stuff. So do you guys just play like ping pong all day with the with your <laughs> free time that this gives you? Because that sounds amazing. I convert people to pure script. That's my hobby. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a good point. Um, this does not magically make all your stuff work instantly the first time and perfectly forever. Um, but I do think that it gets you to, so Aaron, your question was, is like, is development faster, right? And I think that in many cases, development is slower to the first line of code. And I think there's a very big distinction between, um, this comes up a lot when I talk to people about pairing. They'll say, uh, you know, or you're faster when you're pairing. And it's like, well, faster to like write, write it the first time or faster to like do it correctly? To finish, yeah, from start to finish. Right, Arri arriving at the incorrect answer quickly doesn't really get you anything. Yeah, and I feel like um, when I have to break things down and, ooh, I really want to touch this other thing inside here, but I can't do that. So I have to think of a way to structure this that does not require, you know, two reducers to know about each other or to depend on each other or to care about ordering or, you know, all these things that would, that are sort of uh, effectful and, and inner, you know, cause these things to be complected together. Um, I end up with a better solution and I end up with that better solution the first time I write the code. Um, so I often get to that like ideal thing the first time I'm writing the code, not, it doesn't have to wait for the rewrite. I can actually do it the first time because I'm being pushed into it. Which in a way is easier to, it's so this, this talk though, it's easier to convince a programmer with experience that this is a, a good solution when you have the knowledge of, oh, okay, well, 
there's a lot that goes into it, and if you're writing bad code, there you have to fix. There, there's some kind of development cost there, um, some kind of tech, technical debt. Right. Is the top of their term there, and so um, it's a little bit easier to convince a programmer than it is to convince someone that doesn't know. You know, if you have some boss, for example, that doesn't know very much about programming, yes, that's, it can be a tougher sell. In the same way that pair programming can be a tougher sell. And if we're talking about just like you're already in your JavaScript ecosystem, I, I make this. I mean, this is kind of more of like a political discussion at this point. It's like anything about functional programming, but you're you are the source of technical expertise, and and that's why that person's cutting you that check. That's why you know they're the boss, and they're just kind of like giving you direction and stuff. But ultimately, it's up to you to determine when it's okay to use a for loop and when it's okay to use map and when it's okay to use other things. And usually, they don't want to know. So. If you're having a discussion with your peers on like, should we use Lodash or should we use Lambda or Ramda or whatever, it, it's do you really need to get clearance from a non-technical manager about that? Well, I think Aaron was even arguing that like maybe these kinds of arguments of like, wow, it does these things for you are only like a young naive programmer thinks they write good code the first time, right? Like it, it takes some yeah. convincing that you don't just do that. Like, I know it took me a long time to where I was like, no, I'm just not doing it quite right. I, you know, if I use this paradigm, MVVM or uh, MVP or, you know, this, this next like paradigm will be the thing. It's not anything inherent to the way I'm writing code. Um, you know, I just got to change my paradigm a little. Uh, and that, you know, eventually I was kind of like, you know, I'm actually out of ideas here. <laughs> I think there might be a bigger structural thing going on. Uh, and, and I don't know that you get to that easily. I, I definitely had a harder time selling inexperienced developers on functional programming versus more experienced developers. And there's many things like if you're new and you've just learned a whole bunch of skills, being told those skills are kind of crap, maybe isn't the nicest, uh, you know, message to receive. Like you're not really <laughs> super eager to hear that. Right. You have, you haven't been like, you haven't been bit by all of those things that you just learned yet. Whereas the veteran. Yeah, some, sometimes you have to put in that time to, to learn about because I mean, no one here is claiming that there's sure. no good side to imperative programming or object-oriented programming or anything. There, there's there's a strength and a weakness, and you need to put in the time to learn both of them and to learn, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe I'd prefer to get rid of some of these weaknesses. And are those weaknesses things that um, care about in this context? Like, if you want to write really, really fast code that runs really efficiently on a, a piece of hardware, almost always you're going to be able to find a better solution in imperative, I think, because it's, it simply matches the, what the hardware is doing. Uh, there's less translation, right? But do we care about it that much? Like, yeah. there's a reason we use garbage collected VM based languages. Uh, like, a lot of us writing in .NET or JavaScript or something, we clearly do not care about bare to the metal performance. So, like, why hold on to the idea that, like, well, we got to write an imperative because otherwise our code just wouldn't be efficient? It's like, do you know how long a positive, you know, a garbage collection sweep takes, or you know, like any of these things that could completely dominate, you know, the the performance profile? Right, you're not talking about adding on seconds onto each, you know, iteration. We're just talking about a very, very small difference in performance. Potentially, and sometimes, I mean, Haskell, through a lot of engineering effort, it's actually really, really fast. Like Haskell, I think, generally speaking, is faster than .NET and Java. I mean, of course, any micro benchmark, you, you'll There's, you'll oh, have yeah, your, you uh, you know, different argument. But generally speaking, Haskell's pretty darn fast. Are there any more questions we want to ask? Um, I think we kind of, you mentioned technical, someone mentioned technical debt. Um, are we arguing here that functional programming somehow creates less technical debt? Um, so my limited experience, it's a, it's a yes and a no. 
I'd say overall, yes. And uh, the no is that, um, especially when you're just starting, you're kind of learning how to organize things, all the functions can make it difficult to, uh, to get your code organized. This is something I've talked about in the past, um, having to do with functional programming. It can be difficult to make, to give all your functions to sync names and to put them in places that make sense. And you, you end up with just a whole bunch of, bunch of functions. And so you, it's very easy to forget um, that you already wrote something that did something. And so maybe you have duplicate functions or you have, uh, you forget that you already did something and so you do it a different way kind of thing. And so in that, that's the, in that sense, that's the only way. And I think that has to do more with being inexperienced because I think that would also be true and imperative when you're just getting started. But overall, I think there's having more clear, simpler code that is testable is absolutely going to give you less tech, technical debt. One thing I would say about the, the things you were bringing up, like, well, you might end up with two functions that do the same thing, or they might be kind of uh, poorly organized. In the grand scheme of like refactorings, mm-hmm. deleting a duplicate function and moving from one namespace to another as a, like a static function is on the very safe, easy side. Pulling apart two like highly complected like objects whose tendrils have reached deep inside each other is like crazy difficult. So even the technical debt you might sure. kind of occur extra that you wouldn't have in a more familiar paradigm is probably easier to deal with than sort of the equivalent kinds of technical debt you would get, the equivalent amount of technical debt you would be getting in other paradigms. That's my viewpoint on that. So real quick, uh, I know, Gary, you had a question about naming when you kind of like looked into, like when you looked into FP for the first time. Yeah, and actually, uh, I I'd kind of been reminded of it earlier when um, you were talking about conciseness as one of the benefits of pure functions, um, and the functional code that I've seen, uh, just the the variable names are one letter. That they're all very short. It's almost unreadable. Is that a? I'm sure it's not a constraint of the language. Is it a convention? Right. Is it because it's a bunch of math nerds just writing mathy functions? What is the reason for that? There's a there's a really good blog post that somebody put together for this on like why X is a great variable name. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give the TLDR on that? We, sh- we should include that in the podcast notes if we can, Dave. Um, yeah, so the, the gist is that you wind up writing functions that are so incredibly generic that variable names like X and F are really reasonable things that you can give it. And let's give an example. You write, you write a uh, kind of a, a map operation, right? And you're going to apply the function that's passed in to the thing in, in the collection, right? Um, what, do you, what do you use as the variable name for the thing? The thing. Thing, <laughs> right? But at that point, is A any worse? Or E for like element or something like that, and and that's like okay, so you know th- that works for your like your your map operation, right? And it turns out that like actually a lot of your code that you write is of that nature, <laughs> in in functional type stuff, and it's uh, much more generic than you're normally used to, and so E or A is A is just kind of conventional ABC um, or XYZ kind of becomes like it actually doesn't feel all that uh, overly concise it's like well yeah because i don't know what this thing is what possible like meaningful name could i give it okay yeah that actually makes perfect sense and and just with how i'm used to programming i'm used to more concrete like 
we're going to perform an operation on this specific object rather than the more generic. What, what you wind up finding out is that a lot of the things that you are, since you're moving more to like inert data and away from complex objects and stuff, you find that the only difference between much of your different functions that you're writing is just by like the names of the the objects that you're operating on, right? So, you know, if you're going to sort by names or you're going to do something with names on an object, you're going to pluck them out or whatever. Um, if they're all like different objects, but you can potentially like shunt them into the same function, then that's what you would do. You wouldn't you wouldn't split those necessarily. And and if you're coming from an imperative world, like your user, uh, the thing that pulls off the name from the user and the thing that pulls off the name from the book will probably be separate at first because you're used to those being two completely different objects and you're not allowed to pass those same two objects into the same function and expect that to work. And at some point you're just like, no, I don't I don't care because eventually let's get a name in there and we can just sort based on that. Or we can do operations based on that. And if it's like, well, does it really matter what the object came from? And does it even matter what the property name is at some point? And so that can become like a configurable part of the function. And when you start talking about like that, like you're so far abstract from the this idea of like I'm going to sort user name that you're just dealing in generic land where like the only thing that makes sense for a variable name is like x and y. The other thing I would throw in there is that you're also looking at languages like Haskell and uh, PureScript and Elm and stuff, and those languages feature a um, kind of polymorphism that is a bit of a upgrade from like your C sharp and Java polymorphism. So you're actually able to say abstract things about more different kinds of scenarios than just like I have a list of T, you know, kind of a thing, like in C sharp. And as a result, you that that's another reason that push that you end up in that situation where I actually have a fair number of functions where I just have no idea what this thing is. So I'm gonna call it A or X. Yeah, that's a that, those are that's a pretty good answer. It's it's an answer that makes sense and is kind of terrifying from my limited perspective. Yeah. On functional programming. Yeah, I've had uh, I've I've disappeared for a while on on a project and you know did all my fun Ramda stuff to everything and I, when I came back and showed it to some of the other people they were like why did you name this F why is this named X and I had to sit down and kind of like give the same explanation that I'm giving now that that we that we've talked about now of like well that function is just so generic it can just be used anywhere it's 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 being used in this one context here but it really can go and do anything. Yeah, it sounds very powerful. Okay, and then I think that we had one final question, uh, which uh, Aaron had to go, unfortunately. It was his question. <laughs> I wish we had had time to get his answer on it, because I think he said he had an answer for this. Uh, what convinced you that functional programming was the best, you know, quote-unquote, best path for development, or at least the best path for us personally? Does anyone want to talk towards that? Well, I already gave my answer. But I'll, I'll say it again, and, and really, it's um, it's the idea that I do less work. I have to remember less things. I have to keep less of the code base in my mind. Like it, to me, it sounds like it sounds like easier work for me, and and that just seems really beneficial and like a very appealing. You have no idea. <laughs> you probably do have an idea. Yeah. Well, mine's actually pretty different. Um, I went down the OO path real heavy, uh, very, very heavy into OO and all kinds of different, uh, sort of like, you know, not design patterns in the Gang of Four sense, but like architectural patterns, you know, sort of your MVC, MVP, MVVM sort of things. 
both with you know games and web stuff and desktop and all kinds of stuff. And I felt that everything that I was seeing, so everything failed eventually. And I'm like, well, the only constant here is me. So it could be that I'm just a complete dumbass, which is totally possible. But I kind of feel like I, I can point at the problem and be like, well, the problem here is inevitably this, this, and this. And then, you know, this other pattern is going to, you know, make that better. And we try and it's like, well, I mean, yes, in a sense, it made it better, but we still have all these other things. None of these sort of solutions that are being put forward in OO land are solving this for me. Uh, and I'm just like, I'm fed up. Like this, there's got to be a better way. I, I remember like, I, it'd been years that I had been saying to myself, there's got to be a better way. What is the better way? I'm going to keep looking around, find the better way. And so I stumbled upon FP and I was kind of like, ah, okay, whatever. Um, and eventually I, you know, kept seeing it enough times that I'm like, okay, I'll find, I'll give this a shot, whatever. And I looked and I was able to start taking like my problem list of like, okay, well, how are you going to handle this? How are you going to handle this? And every single thing I threw at it, there was a good solution. And I was like, hmm, maybe there's something here, right? And so that's when I started to get, uh, you know, adopt that style in my, in my C sharp and my JavaScript and start going down the path. And for me, the sort of the, the, flip over moment the convincing was when i had kind of just like like i expected that at this like at this by this point in oo land i always ran into like the problem like the thing that made it where oh this is awful and i have to do it this way because you know it's got to work and i gotta ship stuff but man i wish there was a better way of solving this and i kind of like never got there with with functional programming and i still haven't gotten there i mean there's stuff that's you know difficult for me stuff that is doesn't come particularly easy to me uh, but it it feels like there's a actual good principled answer for everything that I have to throw at it, and more coming all the time. That like the amount of unexplored, untapped ideas in FP is amazing and exploding, and I do not think there's anything like that in OO right now. I don't see like an explosion of ideas in where to go in OO land. In fact, OO languages seem to be exclusively taking ideas from FP and, and incorporating them into their languages, like Lambdas. This this is probably. Um, since we're wrapping up this question maybe too long, or the answer may be too long, but why is it that functional programming is, is giving you that, or has that explosion of ideas? Like what, what is it behind Well, first Logan needs to answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my thing, I, I, know, I remember I asked Aaron, like, what his ideal function looked like, and if he had you know, if he had written somewhere, he's like, man, I wish all of my other functions could look like that. I have had that experience personally um where it's like you're doing string operations and it's like okay i'm going to call two string on this thing and then i'm going to call trim and then i'm going to do two upper and then i'm going to do a replace and it's like you just you just chain things along and you just compose it all together and each one of those are very small and they only do one thing and it's easy and then you know i've had some other ones where it's like we would use map for something and i just happen to have a function that would go from the thing I was mapping from to the thing I was mapping to, you know, a nice little conversion function or something. And I could just hand that to map and it would just work. And it's like, wow, I wish all of my programming could be this way. But I, you know, I lacked the, the, the know-how at the time to, to be able to kind of like bridge that gap and put all that together and, or, you know, even knew what these functional languages were and that they were just built doing these things. So once I started seeing that, the value became very apparent to me. Okay, Gary, so restate your question, please. Um, you'd mentioned that these ideas seem to be exploding out of like functional programming. 
like that there's all these new ideas um, and that iterative programming is borrowing from them. What is it about functional programming that se seems built in to have these ideas? I, I don't know if I'm wording that in a great way, but. Like, why is it the fertile ground for new ideas all of a sudden? Yes. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't have a particularly great answer. Maybe Logan has an answer to this. I, I think it's because there is a lot of sort of industrial usage of functional programming the last few years. And there's just a lot more engineering effort, brain power being aimed in that direction. It's not an academic pursuit. It's not just for fringe things. It's like Facebook is building stuff in a functional way. Redux is a first class, you know, project under React and is promoted. And like, the first principle of Redux is write in pure functions. Like this is like what Facebook is saying to the JavaScript community. That that is a crazy sea change from five years ago, or ten years ago, or twenty years ago. So I think just as people say, okay, we're totally on board with all these ideas. Now, how do we solve insert hard problem X? Um, we're pushing forward into more difficult problems, and and we've accepted that we're going to do it in a functional way. But we don't maybe we haven't mapped out the territory of how do we solve certain things in that functional way, and so um, there's a lot of math and sort of category theory that has been done that maybe is useful, and people are kind of trying that on, and sometimes that works, and sometimes that's not a very good idea, uh, and then you know people are kind of continuing to evolve, uh, you know their explorations in the same way that it felt like OO was kind of figured out in the 2000s, you know it kind of came into its own in the 90s as a real thing. And people jumped on board, and then the 2000s was kind of when everyone tried bajillions of different patterns and whatnot. And then we kind of figured out, oh, maybe deep inheritance hierarchies are not a very good idea. And POJOs or POCOs, you know, regular objects are just fine, and we can use those. And, and then we kind of like settled down, and we have this set of kind of accepted good ideas in OO. We don't necessarily have that in FP. And more so, since the ideas are often very, very simple, like, you know, people talk about monad all the time, and we'll get to monad. Monad is literally two functions. Like the entirety of like what a monad is is two functions, and the first function is if I give you a value, just let's call it a, you can put that a into the monad. Like you can wrap, like put it in your list, basically, if you want to think of it that way. Like that's that's half of what a monad is, and the other half is only slightly more complex. And this is like the big scary concept of functional programming, right? Monads. Ooh. It's really, really simple things. And so it's because they're so simple and we have this kind of built-in composability, we tend to like to make new things and kind of mix and, you know, it, it's the same way of like, um, let's, let's talk about music here real quick. So you can look at like pop music and see how pop music goes through like fairly broad, you know, not like exactly on a decade by decade basis, but you, you know, if you hear a song, you can be like, that song's from the 70s or 80s or 90s, right? Like fairly, fairly broadly. Um, because we have these big, nice trends. And then you look at something like Electronica, and within you know a very short period of time when Electronica kind of blew up, you had like 50 subgenres, and you know, like there's this like insane variety that, that happened real quick. And it's because it was really easy to produce, and you know, it, it was during the internet age, so it was shared heavily, and there was a lot of people kind of like with their hands in that. And I feel like because it's so simple. Functional programming is kind of like the electronica of, um, you know, the programming world where, you know, OO is sort of the bigger, more heavyweight, like pop music that, you know, you need a full band and it needs to be produced very like heavily and you need someone who can actually sing to be part of it. You know, there's not a lot of pop music that's purely instrumental, whereas like some dude or lady in, in their garage can 
or in their bedroom can totally make a amazing electronic album like by themselves. Is that kind of that? That's my view of of things. Yeah, I, uh, that makes sense. I think. Do you have anything to add to that, Logan? Like, is there anything that jumps out to you as like why kind of FP is now going in all these different directions all of a sudden? I don't even have insight to that right now, honestly. Like, I don't even see like the big. I, I hear about people bring up monads a lot, and it's like I I'm just like, hey, let's talk about more simple things first. Like, I, I'm willing to build up, but it, discussions keep getting drawn back there for reasons I don't understand completely. And maybe that's just because that's where hard mode seems to start for a lot of people. It definitely seems to be a wall, and it's like so silly that it is presented as big and scary and complex. Like, we'll totally cover it, and you're just gonna be like, really, that's it? Like, that's yeah. Well, I mean, I th I think there was some t point where we were at like Lambda Conf, and I was like, is that really like what this is? And of course, that doesn't give me the ability to like create things with monads that were not monads before, or something. But you know, it didn't seem like it was like terribly complicated. It's just it needs some background before you can really like properly grok it, I think. And, and it feels to me exactly the same way where you go, okay, I have pure functions, and you're like, that's it, really? Like, just make everything have pure functions? Like, that, like, there can't possibly be enough structure here to build real applications this way. And even though I yeah. know I'm supposed to use pure functions, I don't quite know how to hook them into the effectful stuff, which is kind of like a question you had earlier, Gary, right, is, great, I've got this pure function thing, and I'm totally sold on that. What do I do with it? Like, how do I plug it in? Yeah. Monads are very much the same way. I'm, we're going to explain it, and people are going to be like, okay, well, that's, like, stupidly simple. Why is that important? It's like, I'm learning, like, good patterns on how to write C code and not C++ code. And, you know, may maybe I'm just now starting to learn about the C++ end of it, and then somebody dumps, like, singletons in my lap. And singletons aren't that complicated, but, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm not ready for that yet. If you don't even kind of grok classes, you're kind of like, why? What would they even be? Important? Right, you're still still trying to like internalize all of those things, and it's like I see the value and everything, but you know, it's still like you're still like grappling with it and still trying to wrap the head around it and everything. And then it's like, well, let's start talking about like the flywheel pattern, and like I don't even understand why you would need that right now. Yeah, yeah, you almost can't conceive of the problem that it solves. Right, and so that's where that's what Monad feels like to me. Uh, I can't speak for all the other people who are struggling with that, but that's that's what all of functional programming is like for me right now. <laughs> right. I, f I feel like like one of the things I think we wanted to talk about today before we um, we rapidly changed topics, but we were going to talk about partial application, and I was having a hard time thinking about like I had a concern, just couldn't think about what it was, and it's like it's hard to talk about just partial application in a vacuum, let alone any other. Like feature of a functional language because they a lot of them tie in together. Feels like, and partial applications perhaps one of those is like why would you even want to be able to do that in the first place? And you kind of have to have this sense of like, well, I have these functions and I need to take all these things, and well, I, I don't want to get into it tonight. But what you're saying is it's it's some people think it's super useful, and you almost feel like oftentimes you you can't conceive of why it's useful at all. And it's because you are missing a piece. And it's only when like these three pieces come together that all of a sudden, like, wow, all three of these have to be here for any of them to be useful. And together, they are insanely useful. Right. I remember when I was first like looking through the Rambit documentation, I stumbled across Partial and, and Curry. And I remember looking at them and just being like, why would I ever want to write code that does this? This is stupid. 
and it seems hopelessly academic. And and now it's like a lot of my functions that I write, I just pre-wrap it in curry, even if I don't have, you know, I'm not intending to use it as a curried function right away. It's already just wrapped in curry, just so I can do that later without even having it's to It's like the default it. way you want to think about things. Right, right. Because it enables a bunch of patterns that, like, don't... That's how much of a 180 I've taken on it, and but it took time to, to, to properly, like, appreciate mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So do we have any uh, sort of closing questions or thoughts here? I don't think I have anything. I mean, I have a, a million questions, but nothing that's a good closer. <laughs> I don't think so either. My, my kind of wrap-up comment would be uh, functional programming is not a panacea. It does not solve all your problems. It does not make, you know, it, we're not talking about like, this is going to make you 10x more productive because that's like a ridiculous claim. But I do feel that, like, in terms of things that move the needle on productivity of programmers, a slightly nicer IDE or, uh, you know, the next web framework, the next Rails or, you know, whatever, um, is going to do way, way less for you than just writing everything as pure functions. Like, in terms of, like, <laughs> making you much more, much more productive and much is in terms of, you know, teens to tens of percentages points here. Not, nothing crazy, like 100% more effective. But that's still really, really important, I think. Like, if you could be 10% more effective, that is, that's huge, right? That's, it, you might argue that's as significant uh, as a language change, right? Like, how much more sig- productive were people going from, like, C++ to Java? I think in FP, you often find that your, uh, your quote-unquote best practices are actually just structure uh, that is uh, usually people say it's discovered, not invented, because it is sort of like the irreducible um, logical conclusion of a series of inquiries, right? Like you go down a certain path, and there's only actually one point you could end up at, and it's this, and that's kind of that's why we use it because like it is not correct by definition, but it's like the natural consequence of following a certain set of of rules. And so multiple people independently arrive at such things on their own. And those become kind of like, hmm, there's probably something to it. And a lot of people talk about FP ideas or even languages like the Lambda Calculus. People talk about that being discovered, not invented. Uh, And there's something, I I like languages that have, and and tools and sort of ideas that have that principle that they feel. It's like nobody invented addition. Right. Like it right. was discovered, there's not another way to do that that is consistent, right? Without all kinds of weird stuff going on. Right. It's just a natural property type of a thing, right? That's about it. As always, if you are of a particularly strong opinion on this, one way or the other, we'd love to hear from you. Contact at lambdacast.com is our email. You can leave a comment on the SoundCloud episode at lambdacast.com. Or you could jump on FP chat and bug me. I'm dkuntz on there. I'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks, guys.